welcome to another episode of The Two View, the interesting, informative, engaging, and we hope a little bit entertaining podcast for emergency nurse practitioners and physician assistants in emergency and urgent care. I am Martha Roberts, NP, and I'm here with my co-host, PA Mike Sharma, and we're live tonight. So cool. Hopefully you guys can see us out in YouTube land. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hello, Martha. Uh, ED volumes are really picking up here in the Dallas area. I think I might have hit a personal record the other day. Great to be here live with you and you too out there in YouTube land. So nice to see you. Although it was fun uh, getting an in-person visit in Las Vegas for our boot camp this past month, that was a great course. We had a lot of fun while trying to avoid the COVID mosh pits in the casino. Uh, Remember when I won big on the slot machine? Yeah, that was ridiculous. Uh, We need to put that picture I took of you hitting the jackpot in the show notes I hate slot machines. I'd rather just put money directly into the pit boss's pocket and just save the time. But I think you're making me a believer here. Well, in the end, the house always wins. And let's just say that I crapped out a little bit there. So anyway, so new month, new podcast. This month, we're going to get right into some great topics focusing on the tiny person theme, all things pediatrics. Yeah, we are doing a uh, mini-size episode today, same length, just different size people. We're going to start by discussing bronchiolitis, which we're seeing a ton of right now here. I'm sure you are too. And then transitioning into Kawasaki's disease. We're going to go from there into a brand new clinical guideline for managing those tricky febrile infants under 60 days old, and then how COVID treats kids in the last segment. This is going to be good. Let's get right into it. Now, we know that you've had hours of education on bronchiolitis. You know how to treat bronchiolitis. Well, we want to put a different spin on it. We want to discuss the basic and straightforward workup and treatment because that's what you're going to be doing when you see these kids, uh, but also thinking about other diagnoses that need to be considered. Let's try to focus this discussion on what we do first. All right. So as a pediatric NP, um, in in addition to my adult certification, we often dubbed me in the ER as you're going to see all the kids and get them started, work them up whenever they come in the ER clinician today, right? You see all the kids, let me know. I've been very familiar with this patient. I've spent a lot of time with the disease. It's almost like I can smell them walking in the door, but I've been fooled and kids can turn on a dime good ways, bad ways. So let's talk about not missing it. It actually seems like a lot of people are forgetting about this, obviously, because there's so much going on with COVID. But when I scoured the literature, like I usually do, I found um, most of the in-depth stuff was back in 2017. Well, it's 2021, and we have a lot of issues going on. Um, so we, we can't give bronchiolitis a backseat. Let's bring it back to front and center. Most cases of bronchiolitis are caused by, are caused by RSV. Outbreaks of RSV infection occur every winter, typically, and individuals can be reinfected as previous infection does not appear to cause any lasting immunity. So bronchiolitis can be caused by other viruses, including those that cause the flu or the common colds and, hey, COVID. So, um, you know, basically, this is a super easy, spreadable illness. It it spreads by droplets um, in the air when someone gets sick, coughs, sneezes, talks, whatever, cries. And then they touch shared objects like utensils, towels, toys, whatever. They touch their eyes, their nose, their mouth. And this is why all our kiddos are getting this. They touch and sneeze on everything. And sometimes they even throw up and pee on it too. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how this often looks. We get a four-month-old checking into the ER and we get their temperature when they come in. Rectally, of course, and it's 100.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Not a 
big fever, but also not a normal temperature either. And the parent often says that they're on day three of symptoms, and it started out just kind of like a runny nose and the sniffles, but at this point now, there's more cough, and the parents are concerned because the baby is not feeding as well as they usually do. But you're looking at the kid, and you're seeing that although there is a wet diaper on, you're seeing a little bit of nasal flaring. And you go ahead and pick up the shirt, and you see the slightest bit of intercostal attractions. This is often the presentation of a bronchiolitis patient. This is part of the spectrum of the lower respiratory tract diseases. It is a major cause of illness and hospitalization. I think it might even be the number one cause of hospitalization in kids under one year old when it comes to infectious disease. Um, According to -to up-to-date, bronchiolitis is kind of broadly defined as the syndrome of respiratory distress that occurs in children less than two years of age and is characterized by some upper respiratory symptoms, you know, so up here, like runny nose and cough, followed by later on, a day or two down the road, lower respiratory symptoms. So our crackles, our wheezing, a little bit of increased work of breathing, um, after you might even hear a little bit of whistling that the parents could say like i hear him whistling or wheezing and it kind of comes and goes sometimes these things coexist with other infections like otitis media which is also very common in this population now bronchiolitis typically occurs with a primary infection or a reinfection with a viral pathogen like respiratory syncytial virus but sometimes a bacteria like mycoplasma. Not as common nowadays here. Um, More the RSV picture. COVID-19 can also cause bronchiolitis. In the young children, the clinical syndrome, so the different symptoms that come together to make a bronchiolitis picture, may occur and overlap with some recurrent virus-induced wheezing. And even in our older patients, usually kind of like over a year, some reactive airway disease or straight-up asthma. The diagnosis of bronchiolitis versus a viral-induced wheezing versus acute viral-triggered asthma are all kind of different in their own little ways and should be discussed separately. But we're going to talk about bronchiolitis specifically more here. Um, Even though, you know, COVID can cause this, if you see an acute with bronchiolitis, you know that they kind of fit a very specific syndrome that we've kind of talked about already. Yeah, so in general, we consider severe bronchiolitis uh, to be indicated by any of the following. So this persistent, increased respiratory effort, and that's this this sort of combo of tachypnea, nasal flaring, intercostal, subcostal, or suprasternal retractions, accessory muscle use, grunting. Um, and we this is assessed during repeated examinations, and they just don't really seem to be getting any better. Um, but and we did do a COVID test, right? Yes. So, Mike, we did a COVID test. It's negative, but stick with me here. Oh, okay. So, remember, we're in the ivory tower right now. We want you to remember (laughs) bronchiolitis. So, patients are going to have hypoxemia. Usually, their SATs are going to be lower than 95%. um, But this should be interpreted in the context of other clinical signs, the state of the patient, awake, asleep, coughing. Even altitude is something that UpToDate likes to mention. Also, these kids, they're going to have apnea, periods of apnea. So take a look at that, and some may even have acute respiratory failure. We consider non-severe bronchiolitis to be indicated by the absence of all of the above, right? So however, the severity categories, they may overlap. Clinical judgment is absolutely necessary and imperative to make the appropriate management decisions. 
What is key here is repeated observations. Every 15 minutes is what we really like to do. They're necessary to adequately assess the disease because examination findings may be very subtle. Um, They may change, like I said, on a dime. Um, Yeah, so how do we decide if these kids need to come in, Mike? Like, when are we making that decision? Well, you kind of spelled out a couple of points already. Um, The hard part is, like you said, these kids can vary over time. And even though there are guidelines that have been set out by different pediatric societies and pediatrics hospitals, you, you talk to 20 different clinicians and you might get five different ways that you might manage a bronchiolitis patient from very aggressive to, you know, almost more of a hands off, let them fight their way through it. When we're talking about choosing hospitalization for some sort of supportive care, because usually that's what's required is more supportive care than any sort of fancy medication or anything like that. We're thinking about those things if the kid looks, you know, toxic and, you know, not just the lethargy that parents talk about. We're like, oh, he's just sitting around on the couch playing Nintendo, uh, you know, 12 hours a day. That's not lethargy. Lethargy is having a hard time staying awake or not even awake enough to feed. Uh, Maybe they're looking dehydrated. We're having some clearly decreased wet diapers or urination going on. Those are very clear reasons for hospitalization. We're looking for, like you mentioned, some more severe respiratory distress. So it could be nasal flaring. It could be, um, you know, um, the neck flaring here, the accessory muscle use. It could be supersternal. It could be subcostal retractions. We could see a respiratory rate greater than 70 breaths per minute because that's going to tire a kid out breathing that fast for so long, okay? And then definitely any sort of cyanosis, changing, bluing of the colors of the face or tips of fingers, super concerning for worsening badness coming up. The apneic spells you mentioned are often more common in our younger children. Once they're up above six months, above a year, that usually is not happening. Um, Hypoxemia, boy, that's so tricky, right? You know, you mentioned all those different factors that can come into play when deciding, do I believe the pulse ox? Because we know it's hard to get a good pulse ox off of a finger that is just so itty bitty sometimes. Sometimes you're not getting that sticker on there where it's like the pulse ox is saying 60, but you look at the kid and he looks amazing. So, you know, as much as you're looking at a pulse ox below 95, 94 as a predictor for worsening disease or severity of disease, if you look at the rest of the kid and they look amazing, you got to treat the patient and not the monitor right? And one more thing to consider that has nothing to do with the patient specifically, you're thinking about all these other kind of like socioeconomic or other barriers to care. If you're talking to the parent and it's clear the parent does not seem to be equipped to handle this problem, that's not a ding on the parent. That's how it goes. I can't do my taxes. I hire a guy for that, right? So if this parent can't take care of this kid, this sick kid, that's somewhere you want to lean towards hospitalization or if there's barriers let's say with finances or transportation or anything like that that might be one of those times where uh, the word social admit kind of gets a bad rap I feel like but sometimes you do have to do a little social admission for these socioeconomic and other factors yeah so you know Mike I don't want to interrupt you here but I just wanted to say like I still feel like our listeners might be like look I'm not really sure if I need to admit this kid I kind of want to admit this kid, but I'm not sure. 
It's like, this is what I do, right? So if you are having this thought, like, should I admit or not admit? And I'm concerned. Like, yeah, sure. Go ahead and admit the kid overnight for observation. I have no problems admitting these kids. I make one phone call and I say, hey, I have this kid. Um, he's a uh, one-year-old. Uh, he's got a confirmed RSV uh, bronchiolitis. And, uh, you know, uh, I, oh, well, in your case, it was a four-month-old. You know, he seems kind of listless. He's kind of eating, but not really. These are his um, sats. I haven't been able to get a really good read, but I got to be I got to be honest with you. The parents are really heavy smokers. I'm not mm. sure if the kid's going to be able to thrive at home right now. You know, mom seems really stressed out. She's got four other kids with her. Um, you know, dad was going to come up and maybe stay with the kid overnight. Uh, you know, and then at, by this point, the pediatrician or whoever you're talking to is like, oh, you know what? I'll come see the kid. Let's just watch him overnight. This is not a hard admit, honestly. So yeah, I mean, the, I totally agree. There's usually younger kids and um, a compelling story, I think, often buys the admit beyond any go. lab test that, that, you know, this is not one of those cases where the pediatrician's going to be like, well, what was his CBC? And <laughs> did you do a pro-calcitonin? That's not what these cases end up like. You know, you tell a, a good enough story, you can get this kid admitted for sure. Right. And, you know, our listeners, it's like, look, be really confident with this diagnosis. You know, add the extra stuff. We did a COVID test. It was negative. This kid has X, Y, and Z as their medical history. I mean, be complete and convincing because you know this stuff. This is not hard stuff. This is our bread and butter. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but tell us more about albuterol. No, I love that. I think it's a great thing to consider is how do we tell the story? Sometimes we need that kind of backup of like, Give me the script, so to speak. Okay, yeah. um, I kind of hinted at this earlier. Here is that as far as tests and treatment required here, um, it's really more of the supportive care. We're giving oxygen when kids needs oxygen. We're giving some hydration when kid needs hydration. Because guess what? If if you can't breathe well. You can't eat real well, especially when you're a kid. And so some of these people need that rehydration from poor oral intake. You know, we've been told before about how albuterol is not a treatment for bronchiolitis. And, and I kind of agree with that. But the hard part is when you have that sick looking kid and he's coming up on one year of age and there's wheezing, they don't look that great. Maybe this is just straight up bronchiolitis, or maybe we have to use that spit approach that Diane Birnbaumer talked about on our last episode. Let me take a step back. Like, sure, our hospitals are being overrun with RSV bronchiolitis right now. And sure, this kid looks a little bit sick and there's wheezing, and that's probably the reason for their bronchiolitis. Or... Could this be a kid who's having their first asthma exacerbation? Maybe there is some degree of bronchospasm that is causing the wheezing. So I used to get fixated on like, no, I'm not supposed to give albuterol in these kids. But maybe in these older kids, give them a try of albuterol. You know, one of the things you want to do if you're not sure about these kids is you watch them in the ER for a little while. Right. There's nothing wrong with throwing on a little albuterol, especially if maybe there's a family history of asthma or seasonal allergies or eczema, right? The atopy triad here. Who's to say there isn't a bronchospasm component? Wait, so, so Mike, you know, I just want to share the screen for a minute for people that are watching here. I really want to bring this up right now. This is, uh, let's get this shared. And I know that if you're listening later, um, you can look this up 
It's the CHOP Pathways. Can you see? Now you oh, see? yeah. There you go. Nice. Okay. So this is the CHOP Pathway here, the Children's Hospital um, of Philadelphia. And basically here you can see additional treatment considerations here in this box. Albuterol trial. This is evidence-based. Everything that CHOP does is in this clinical pathway for you to follow. If you feel lost with anything, I have worked at CHOP. These people know what they're doing and they see the stuff all the time. So you can see here, even racemic epi is on there, right? But then there's your whole supportive care here, suction, hydration, nutrition, supplement, um, uh, excuse me, nutrition and hydration, supplemental oxygen, uh, pulse oximetry, and then of course the fever management. Make those kids feel better. But you know, if you want to comment on any of these other things that we're seeing on the screen, go ahead. But uh, I just really, for our listeners, CHOP is the best if you don't know about it already. Right. Children's Hospital of uh, Philadelphia, super well recognized in the treatment of a lot of these pediatric conditions and have a lot of great pathways. You can go to their website and look up if you're not sure how to manage these kids. This is a way you can kind of say, hey, I'm following the CHOP pathway. Most pediatricians worth their salt will go, okay, you know you know what you're doing here. You know where to look at least to get your resources. So if you're going to watch this kid in the ER, they got a little fever, they're looking a little punky as they say, maybe you throw them a little albuterol, a one-timer of albuterol. If it works, the kid feels better. If it doesn't work, it's time to put the albuterol away. Probably not a bronchospastic component there. How about racemic epinephrine? Like we give racemic epi to other kids with breathing difficulties, right? With, you know, croup and stuff. But if the kid isn't having some sort of respiratory distress, especially if they're not having worsening respiratory distress, this is another one of those things, racemic epi, that does not seem to help in your stable or your very mild bronchiolitis. Maybe it might, certain people suggest, prevent a worsening kid from hospitalization, kind of put the brakes on the RSV. So especially at the time of this recording, when we're really getting um, flooded with bronchiolitis admits, it might be worth a try just to do one more thing to maybe prevent an admission. How about hypertonic saline? Gets a lot of play. I think it's because it's considered a low harm intervention, like it's salt water. I can't overdose a kid on nebulized salt water. Mixed guidance on this, depending on who you ask as far as how much it helps. Um, CHOP feels like this is more appropriate for inpatient use, not something you should be reaching for in the ER. How about ribavirin, right? Board of view question. What is the antiviral for RSV? It's ribavirin. This is, again, not something to be reaching for in the ED, even though it is the only antiviral FDA approved for RSV. This is one of those latch stiff efforts that uh, pediatric hospitals will give after the patient's already been admitted. That's bronchiolitis. Right. I mean, that was an awesome review, Mike. Thanks for doing all that research, too. I think huh. you know, go, <laughs> going into the, the fall season and the winter season, uh, this stuff's important to know and review. So hopefully that took care of your questions or forgetfulness about it. And there you go. Oh, and let's let me jump in real quick. So we're going to have that CHOP pathway on our show notes, right? At our website, that's the twoview.fireside.fm. The number two view.fireside.fm. We're going to have that. We're going to have more from uh, pediatrics uh, and ITSA about reviewing all the guidelines out there. Other recent articles. There was uh, one that I found here. This is from 2019. It's a review of the different clinical practice guidelines out there. Really interesting because, you know, I, I like guidelines. I really do like guidelines because it gives you something to fall back on here. But it's really fascinating how you look through the guidelines. Let's just, for instance, go to hypertonic saline, right? So they said 
Eight guidelines recommend the routine use of hypertonic saline in uh, treating bronchiolitis. And seven recommend against routine use. And there are seven that state it's equivocal evidence or recommend considering a trial. So as much as there are guidelines out there, none of these, even CHOPS, is a hard and fast rule. Consider that there are multiple guidelines out there for this disease, and it gets a little tricky. Short story is supportive care is usually what wins the day for these patients. Nice. I like that, actually, um, you know, kind of just saying, hey, look, you know, we're all not 100% on this, but use your clinical judgment as well. Don't forget to have that. Right. All right. So we got three more segments. The second segment that we're going to talk about, and you're going to see why in segment four, why I'm bringing this up uh, again um, as uh, sort of an oldie but a goodie. And let's take a minute to discuss Kawasaki's disease. And why do you ask? Well, you'll see as we get into COVID and kids in segment four. Okay, I'm not going to spoil it. So this disease, it was first described in Japan by this guy named Tamasaku Kawasaki in 1967. And the first cases outside of Japan were actually reported in Hawaii in 1976. First off, let's talk about a little more history here. This information is coming from the Mayo Clinic. We'll put that in the liner's notes as well as CHOP. And they have a great algorithm for working this up and information. And please check those out again. Um, Kawasaki's disease, it causes swelling and inflammation in the walls of the medium-sized arteries throughout the bodies. And why do we have this happen? Again, not 100% clear, but it primarily affects children. It can be seen in young adults, sure, but oftentimes those major inflammatory cases have to do with an autoimmune disease or something else. Um, it's, we're not 100% sure what causes this. We have some ideas. But did these kids maybe have some autoimmune disease to begin with? Maybe possibly there. We don't know. But the inflammation tends to affect the coronary arteries, which, as we know, supplies blood to the heart muscle and inflammation of this area is incredibly scary, scary stuff. So Kawasaki's disease is sometimes called mucotaneous lymph node syndrome because it also affects the glands, the lymph nodes, and the mucous membranes inside the mouth, the nose, and the throat. Now, I will talk um, about this at length at our boot camps. I recently did for our pediatric rash discussion, but I always leave Kawasaki's disease to discuss until the last possible thing for a reason. I go through dozens of rashes and fever-like syndromes with a viral exanthem that could lead to the diagnosis of Kawasaki's for a variety of reasons. Number one, it's not usually the first diagnosis you're thinking of when a kid comes in with a fever for one day. And two, it's often diagnosed as an effort of exclusion. And it's hard to prove and even harder to treat sometimes. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute because when we do recognize it and treat it with the right treatment, we are successful. You mentioned you talk about this in terms of pediatric rashes. The rash of Kawasaki disease, um, when it's accompanied by the high fever you usually see with it, is peeling skin. And not like the way a burn looks like. You know, if I've got a bad sunburn, maybe you got burned by water, you get like a, a bubble, kind of like a, you know, a bulla. In Kawasaki disease, the skin just kind of sloughs off, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, when you kind of pull off a sock and you kind of get this like, you know, cloud of, of, of foot dust here, you know, um, there's that, but also these kind of foot peels that people can do here where the skin kind of flakes off. And usually it's not painful. It's really weird. And um, you really have to take those socks off. You know, I'm a big believer, kid with a fever, I'm pulling those socks off to take a look. Maybe I find hand, foot, and mouth disease, or maybe I find 
peeling skin as well. Okay. The good news that, like Martha mentioned, Kawasaki disease is usually treatable, and most kids recover without serious sequelae for down the road. Here are some common denominators that the studies on Kawasaki disease have observed that seem to kind of uh, increase risk of kids to get this illness. First off, age. Children under five years old are most at risk of Kawasaki disease. Next, gender. Boys are slightly more likely than girls to develop Kawasaki disease. And thirdly here, ethnicity. Children of Asian or Pacific Islander descent, like Japanese children or Korean children, have higher rates of Kawasaki disease. Yeah, so these are all statistically sort of more likely to what you're going to see on the presentation. But before we go into sort of treating this, Mike, I want to talk a little more about how it progresses. And essentially, you're going to see signs and symptoms usually appear in three phases. And who knows, you might see this patient during the first, second, or third phase. You know, it's good to be familiar with how they roll out. So essentially in the first phase, you might see things like a fever that's greater than 102.2, statistically that they look in the literature, and it lasts for more than three to five days. You're going to have extremely red eyes uh, without, key here, without thick discharge. Um, so that conjunctivitis without signs of, you know, what we would call the typical pink eye, right? So a rash on the main part of the body and sometimes in the genitalia area, which we talked about the peeling, red cracked dry lips, swollen red tongue, red skin on the palms of the hands, soles of the feet, and perhaps they might even have these enlarged lymph nodes at this time. But this is the other one, Mike, that I love when people put this in the literature. They're irritable. All right. Mofos, we know they're going to be really upset. Okay, these little things are in our ER. Even big kids. I mean, think about how many grown men you've seen cry, like getting stitches, right? So irritability, we know can be in any kid. So that's super nonspecific, whatever. Let me throw one more thing in there with you, Martha, here. So the red eyes, right? When we see a kid with regular viral conjunctivitis, usually it's one eye right? The, the parents bring him in right away when that eye starts to pink up here. What we have with Kawasaki disease, how it's different from a viral pink eye, number one, you nailed it. There's no discharge. I usually ask the mom, when the kid woke up, was their eye all stuck and crusted together? And when I hear, yeah, I, I'm a little more reassured, frankly. Number two is this starts out bilaterally. So both eyes are popping red at the same time. That's one other thing you can look for that is different than your typical viral conjunctivitis with the viral disease. Yeah. So I'm just going to quickly share my screen again. So for those of you that are listening, I know you can't see it, but this is just a little visual aid here that kind of pinpoints on the body. Here, here's a good picture of what the eyes might look like. Your mouth is this beet red. There's the temperature. The hands are red. They may even start to peel around the fingernails there, um, rash on the feet. And then again, you can see a rash involving much of the body as well. So um, with that being said, uh, we will put that on our liner notes as well. But um, Let's talk now about the second phase, which this is key here. The second phase is like a ton of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Boom. That's the second phase. The parents might tell you that they've seen all these other things, and now the patient is developing worsening peeling of their skin, and they have joint pain um, as well as pain in their belly, and they're vomiting or having diarrhea. The third phase, okay? Now, in this third phase, signs and symptoms, they might slowly go away, um, unless, of course, now complications are developing. And might I add these signs and symptoms, when I say slowly go away, sometimes eight 
to 12 weeks it takes for some of these symptoms to go away. That is not an easy digestible thing for parents. And a lot of these kids are in the PICU and step down to the peds unit for weeks at a time. I, I just took care of one, actually. Um, so at this point, we really hope that any complications have been diagnosed. But again, I have caught this late. I have caught this in the third phase. And I have seen this mostly because I've worked in peds and, you know, um, you kind of just like, if that's your specialty, you're seeing those special people. So I'm not going to go through all of the things that we have listed here, Mike. I put a whole long list of all the other things that you could see, but I'm going to talk about the five most likely, again, just to remind you guys, 96% of the time you're going to see involvement of the mouth, cracked lips, red strawberry tongue. 96% of the time you're going to see sort of this polymorphous rash, macupapular, erythematic, multiforme-like, or the desquamation that you're seeing on the hands and the feet. And about 89% of the time, you're going to see the bilateral conjunctivitis, non-purulent, okay, key here. And then about 75% of the time, changes in the extremities um, that that progress to the genitalia area or the stomach or the back. And then, of course, about 60% of the time or so, this cervical lymphadenopathy. Um, Again, which is really interesting to me, fever is not always there because I'm going to say I think it's difficult to actually get the correct temperature for a kid if it's not done rectally. So some of these older kids that are suffering from Kawasaki's, I don't think we're getting accurate temperatures on them, which is why I think the statistical evidence of that is a little wonky. But that's my own personal opinion, having reviewed the literature. So anyway, Mike, why don't you um, give us the actual criteria that pediatricians or the PICU intensivists want to know? Right. If you're spinning a tail for the hospitalist, here's what you're going to want to say. Um, you're going to want to know, first off, that you have this presence of fever lasting at least five days with no other explanation. And the hard part is there is that sometimes parents aren't even taking temperatures at home. Kind of speaks to your point, Martha, about how like sometimes we don't know that the fever is present because no one's taking it. They just muy caliente right on the skin here. Um A significant portion of kids with Kawasaki's have some sort of other infection. And so just be careful about seeing a fever and some of these things and going, oh, this is just a a bad strep or a bad something else here. What are these five things, four of the five things you want to spell out for the hospitalist in addition to some story of fever? Four of these five things. One, we're going to say it again, bilateral conjunctival injection, bilateral. Number two, some sort of mucous membrane changes. Talk about fissures to the lips. The pharynx has some injection, not just the eyes or the strawberry tongue, these enlarged papilla of the tongue. Number three, some sort of changes to the peripheral extremities, redness of the palms or soles, edema, maybe even some of this desquamating rash, these peeling off in sheets kind of a rash. Number four is these polymorphous rash. It's not like the little red, uh, you know, blanching spots you see in hand, foot, mouth disease. It's just more of a larger scallopy bordered rash. And then the last thing, you need four of these five. The fifth thing is some sort of cervical lymphadenopathy, at least one lymph node, at least one and a half centimeters in diameter. Four of those five (laughs) things, plus the history of fever. I'm laughing because it's like, I, uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, doctor, I'm calling to give the admission, and this node is 1.8 centimeters in size. <laughs> Look, right? I measured it with ultrasound. Uh, you, you know, it's it's 1.7. 
You Wouldn't that be impressive? Here. Actually, I might start doing that because I have my butterfly and be like, hey, I measured the nodes, by the way. <laughs> anyway. At right. that point, the hospital's like, all right, all right, I'll admit him. <laughs> okay. The fact that you even said the words like, hey, I think I have Kawasaki's. They're like, printer turned right, on. Exactly. All right. So, no, this is also really interesting, Mike, which I found in the literature. I've just so fa- fascinating stuff. No laboratory studies are actually included among the diagnostic criteria for typical Kawasaki's. And the labs that you might want to consider, though, just FYI. Okay, so here's the important stuff for what you're doing. CBC with diff, LFTs, CRP, ESR, and a urinalysis. And cultures and other testing may be warranted if you're still trying to tweak out other diagnoses. Some people will even do an LP on these patients, right? Ferritin is another one you can add on. So this two reasons for this. Repeat blood testing on this poor kid. Don't don't make it happen again and again. Like th- that kid might have to get a ferritin stick if a hospitalist really wants it. Um, because a cool pearl about this is that it's usually five times the upper limit of normal. Really interesting stuff, okay? You will win knowing that pearl. Elevated WBCs and platelet counts, transaminases, and acute phase reactants, as well as an anemia and pyuria are suggested of Kawasaki's. And children with Kawasaki's often present with a normocytic, normal chromic anemia. And in one retrospective um, study that I read of about 259 patients, 45% had at least one abnormal liver function. So don't hang your hat like, you know, half the time they're going to have those. But what's also key here, hyponatremia, serum sodium less than 135. That should really blankety blank blank scare you. Okay. (laughs) This, I mean, for realsies, okay. This may be seen with an associated risk of the dreaded coronary artery aneurysms. And that's what we care. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, we don't care about strep throat because you got a little boo-boo in your throat. We care because of rheumatic heart disease. We care about Kawasaki's not because of how gross the person's hands and feet look, but because of these coronary artery aneurysms, okay? So how are we going to assess that? Of course, it's going to be imaging. Um, It's a kid. Often echo is the way to go. And sure enough, transthoracic echocardiography, TTE, is the imaging modality of choice to detect these coronary aneurysms and other, you know, cardiac abnormalities that can happen with Kawasaki's disease. And as soon as we are sussing out, ooh, this person has history of fever, four of the five things, we should be getting that echo right away as soon as our symptoms meet those criteria. There are other imaging modalities that may provide additional information like 3D echo that could find other things like thrombi, although that can be a little bit harder to perform when you've got little kids with little hearts and faster heart rates here. You can do MR coronary angiography, and that can be helpful after treatment has been started. So we can kind of visualize any sort of stenosis, thrombi, hyperplasia of the intima in our difficult image locations like the circumflex and other distal arteries of the heart. Either way, these kids are getting images and they're getting them as an inpatient. Other than maybe you can get that echo uh, early on in your ED before they go upstairs, depending on how fast your uh, imaging team is on echo. Yeah. And so, you know, I pre- have prepared this whole section on IVIG and aspirin, Mike, but to be quite frank with you, I'm going to leave that off because I think if you're interested more in how we treat this, um, you can actually, there's some AHA guidelines, the American Heart Association, they have very specific things for aspirin. Um, some of this stuff has been called into question as far as the treatment with aspirin, but I literally just had a kid with this, um, treated him, um, he got better. And he had all the stuff that we just talked about, the labs, the imaging, the diagnosis, the textbook stuff, treated with IVIG, 
the aspirin and he got better. Um, That's awesome. So yeah, um, the reason why I brought this up in general is because this episode, uh, again, is about pediatrics. But our last segment is going to talk about COVID in kids and something very oddly similar in these super sick kids that develop Kawasaki-like illnesses with COVID. But I'm going to save that for a little bit later because I want you to interject a little bit here with pediatric fever. Yeah, I think you know. I think I know where you're going with that as far as COVID and Kawasaki-like stuff. Um, let's go next up to this big, and it's, it really is big. It's like very thick. I couldn't even staple it. It didn't even fit my stapler. Um, you know, big <laughs> clinical practice guideline. I should have gone double-sided. Um, with the from the American Academy of Pediatrics, that has really made the rounds um, and really has the potential to change how we treat a very scary population: the well-appearing but febrile kid between 8 and 60 days old. Now, you hear me saying 8 and 60. Well, how about 0 to 7? You're just going to leave those kids out? No. We know those kids are coming into the hospital, right? So super sick kids. You see a kid 2 days old with a fever. Uh, that's a pretty slam-dunk admission there. This one kind of goes to the upper ranges of the 8 to 60 because there is more leeway than you'd think based on the most recent uh, guidelines, evidence compiled by this group. This guideline was published in August 2021, just this year, in the journal Pediatrics by Pentel et al. And, of course, we'll have the links in our show notes at twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number two view.fireside.fm. Uh, you know, Martha, what comes to mind when you're sitting there at your computer and you see a one or two month or check into the ED for a fever? I mean, besides bronchiolitis and Kawasaki's disease. <laughs> Obviously not first on my list. But uh, first of all, I feel like a lot of what we talked about is scary. I mean, fever can sometimes be scary, but in other times not be. And I almost actually feel like we should have done this peed special around Halloween time. I don't know. It would have <laughs> just seen a little more fitting and like it's like kind of like kid time. But maybe we can do another one in October. Let's try to piece all of this together to make things easier for you. And number one, get a COVID test. Okay. You're going to need it. Just get it. Be done with it. I don't want to talk any more about it. Now, these days, if I see a pediatric patient with a fever in this age range, I typically already start to think about Diane uh, Berenbaumer's like approach of the spit mnemonic that we talked about and then also add in for selfish reasons my slit mnemonic so Mm. I'm this is the two-word approach that I like for the diagnosis and management of these patients especially in peds but there are also two things that I can't say in front of parents um, because if I spit and slit their kids I think they might arrest me but for spit just a reminder the s is Diane reminds us, it's what is the most serious thing that this kid could have with their fever? P, what's the most probable thing that the kid has with their fever? Although it's really not normal um, for kids to have fevers. uh, But we'll get into that later um, of this age group. Um, uh, The I, which stands uh, for what's the most interesting thing that this could be? And T, what is the treatment, right? So I like to add in um, the slitting because my little slit mnemonic is specific for like more respiratory illnesses and and kind of hashing those things out. So when I think of the S, I think about what mom and dad are telling me, the subjective stuff. What are they saying? That helps me narrow down things. Like if it's a urinary issue, I'm thinking maybe like fever, UTI. If it's a respiratory thing, I want to move on. Um, What do the lungs sound like? That's where the L comes in of the mnemonic. So I'm listening to the patient's lungs. And then the I 
in my slit is for do they look ill? Does this kid look ill? Because if they do, we have a problem. And I'm thinking, hmm, do they look groggy? Is it meningitis? Could it be, you know, some kind of bacteremia? Are they septic? Finally, I ask about timing, which is really important, and get a good history of that. So, um, yeah, that's those are my two favorite mnemonics that I'm probably a longer answer than what you really asked for. <laughs> um, it helps me stay on track after all these years if I spit and slit kids. And I really hope Ricky and Dave don't take that statement <laughs> out of our podcast and put that as a single track. Yeah. <laughs> Can we uh, clip that for later? I have uh, 4541 on the time code. Thanks, Ricky and Dave. Okay, well, not going to lie. I get kind of ugged out when I see young kids in fever. Two of my kids had fever at a real young age. One was like apparently a viral infection that eventually cleared. I mean, we tested the kid always, and nothing ever showed, and things kind of just went away, and they're normal now. The other one turned out to be urinary tract infection at a very young age, and so that child finally discovered to have vesico-ureteral reflux. The, the kid's... Um, you know, valves to the ureters were not functioning properly. And so the child had this reflux of urine up into the ureters toward the kidneys. That put the child on prophylactic antibiotics for a good part of a year, a procedure to fix the ureters here, a pretty big deal, you know. And so something we, we think of, you know, like we have these kids with fever. There's a certain point when kids have stuff like this, a vesicoureteral reflux or a, like I say, congenital heart abnormality. There is a point in time at which nobody knows they have this risk factor for badness, okay? And sometimes you, by being the smart clinician, will pick up, huh, there's something funny going on here beyond just COVID or RSV and more needs to be done. Do you just by, by, by picking up, um, you know, the fever and doing the right thing here, all right? Yeah, and this topic, it's, you know, Mike, it's especially important because we've got recordings of record highs of the surge of COVID-19 Delta variants in the U.S., Pediatric inpatient floors are already filled. I can tell you that from current experience, mostly with RSV, some COVID. Um, We have all our other patients, my transplant patients that come in and out, my sickle cell patients that come in and out. You know, they need beds too. And uh, every bed that can be spared without increased risk of harm to the pediatric patient is a victory. Not, Not just because of leaving one or more free bed open, okay? But because we know that these kids can have iatrogenic complications, complications that we as healthcare workers cause. Right. One of the many things I love about this guideline is that it gets real granular. It's actually three guidelines in one. There's recommendations for the eight to 21 day old infant. We have this very narrow window of 22 to 28-day-old infants, and then you have the 29 to 60-day-old infant. Now, on first blush, that sounds like kind of arbitrary is where they're drawing these lines, but if you think about it, were we drawing lines uh, when we drew lines between an 89 and a 91-day-old infant? Was that any less arbitrary? Perhaps not. You know, These distinctions are actually based on a lot of good data beyond just expert opinion, which I really appreciate. The guidelines cite a couple of large studies throughout that suggest a big drop in bacteremia in the fourth week of life compared to earlier weeks. So that that 22 to 28 day time period really does make a difference when you look at these big studies. Even in the last few decades, the kind of infections that are causing the badness in these kids has changed. The predominant organism we have to worry about now is E. coli. 
Uh, depending on what study you go by, it's either the number one or the number two cause of bacterial meningitis in the population we're talking about today. Uh, understandably, if we're talking about more gram-negative E. coli than our gram-positive bacteria like strep or stuff like that causing problems now, well, that changes everything. That changes what antibiotics we should use. It also changes what tests are most useful for finding this badness. Right. Before we dive into the details, a little more background is important. I think we've uh, we've been used to talking about serious bacterial infections or SBIs in these kids as kind of like a catch-all term for bad kinds of infections that we don't want to miss, something beyond the harmless viral infection. The guidelines authors recommend discontinuing that term and offer up another term. IBI, or invasive bacterial infection, you'll hear us use IBI a couple times in this discussion, and that's to refer to bacteremia or bacterial meningitis because the guideline authors want to peel those causes of fever away from UTI. When we separate them out, we're actually able to rule in or rule out UTI, which is the most common cause of these bad infections. It can make our decision-making a lot easier And I wonder if this will get as much attention as their recent name change for PAs. I mean, but I digress. Okay. Right. Um, Um, Go ahead. (laughs) I was going to point out here, man, we we were on, not to super digress here, but we were uh, featured again on MRAP. Um, this month here, our, the part two of our discussion with Rick Butata. And uh, from what I was told, our first section got more comments than that month on AMRAP than any other section here, just because it's such a, a hot topic. So we get oh, hot yeah. again this month, and the topics were, uh, the comments were hot too. So uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I just wanted to throw that in there about, you got me, you got me all fired up, talk about name change. Okay, go ahead. Uh- yeah, actually, I haven't listened to part two. We did that so so long ago. I can't remember what I said. I hope it was something smart. And uh, Chris Navarro made me sound intelligent. But anyway, the title of the guidelines, okay, that's what I'm talk about, is important. These guidelines are for well-appearing kids with a full-term gestation defined as 37 to 42 weeks who have a rectal temperature of 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or above in the past 24 hours and who are 8 to 60 days of age who are home after being discharged from the hospital or even after a home birth. I like how they mention that, by the way. There are many exclusion criteria. If the child is well-appearing, preterm, and if he was already a a bad infection or surgery in their lives, if there was something like that that happened, they're immunocompromised, if they're medically fragile. That's like so sad when someone explains a case to me and the child's medically fragile. It just breaks my heart. Or requiring some sort of technology or therapeutic intervention to keep them alive. Okay. The two most interesting exclusion criteria, kids who receive vaccinations in the first Uh, in the past 48 hours, over 40% of these kids are estimated to get a fever and kids with clinical uh, bronchiolitis, whether they tested positive for RSV or not. So the guidelines, uh, the authors refer to several studies that show no cases, that's zero cases of meningitis or bacteremia in kids with RSV. Quick tweak there. The exclusion criteria is for the kid that is unwell appearing so if they look right. bad they look oh, did i not say that i'm sorry you, you said well appearing and i, I, I know, did what's well, okay you know i just wanted to, to make sure that's clear just because these guidelines are for the well appearing kids those are the ones that meet the inclusion criteria um here are some other kids that should not necessarily be excluded you know um you know classic trap of thinking oh 
Occam's razor, they have one thing, they can't have something else. Look, kids with URI symptoms, with diarrhea or other like sub-diarrheal loose stool changes, otitis media, recent antibiotic use, positive, rapid, these like multiplex respiratory viral test results that can tell you if you got rhinovirus or other coronaviruses, things like that. You know, um, these panels, by the way, that are kind of, uh, you know, really being popular in a lot of outpatient clinics because I feel like, you know, you run this test and you go, hey, we know your kid has rhinovirus and hence we shouldn't, um, you know, give uh, the patient antibiotics here. Um, That's kind of how it's used, I feel like, in a lot of places here. But guess what? The study authors here for these well-appearing febrile kids are saying, hey, listen, just because something popped on your multiplex respiratory virus panel doesn't mean we should exclude these kids from potentially having some sort of invasive bacterial infection or a UTI. So uh, a good discussion there on what a positive multiplex test may mean in terms of what you do for this kid. Final suggestion, though, if you have access to one of these positive, uh, you know, test results for your child with this multiplex test, it should not change the workup. For a kid who is 28 days or younger, there's too high of a risk still of having some sort of a coexisting invasive bacterial infection. However, for a kid over 28 days, still do the workup, but when it comes time to make more individualized management decisions and you have that positive viral test in your hand, maybe they can consider at that time, um, when it's time to make some more uh, individual management decisions, there is more room to play and have some shared decision-making in those older children. Yeah, so disclaimer, warnings. I feel like a lawyer when I talk about this stuff, but (laughs) let's get into the actual guidelines. There are nice flowcharts for each of these three guidelines. So if you are sitting by the pool or the fireplace and listening to us, although in Sacramento, it's like 100 and a bazillion degrees. We're the closest like to burning up right now, I feel like, and there's all the fires. Totally digress. But you can listen along to the podcast anytime you want and look at all the data that we have on there at twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number two, view.fireside.fm. But if you're driving, put your hands back on the wheel. We don't, we don't want you to to be texting or looking at anything. Okay, so the first guideline of the three is these febrile infants between 8 to 21 days of age, okay? And this is probably the simplest of the three guidelines. The authors recommend that all of these kids get admitted for observation, regardless of what your tests in the ED show. In addition, you're doing all the things to look for infection in the ED. You're getting a UA, specifically catheterized, as well as blood cultures, lumbar puncture. Consider getting inflammatory markers for the processes, uh, excuse me, for the purposes of these guidelines. The authors are talking about the inflammatory markers of procalcitonin, C-reactive protein, and the absolute neutrophil count, or ANC. So the authors want you to consider whether the patient is at risk for HSV. Please refer to the, refer to the guidelines for those risk factors, as they are not necessarily intuitive and giving antivirals um, if they are high risk. But I want you to do your own little research on that. When it comes to empiric antibiotics, the authors recommended ceftazidime. And if you're thinking bacteremia or sepsis, then there are and, and there are high amounts of ESBL or extended spectrum beta-lactamase, E. coli strains in your community, use gentamicin instead. 
Okay, use that instead of the ceftazidine. If bacterial meningitis is suspected, then it's time to use meropenem and not ceftazidine. Listeria is becoming less common infection, um, but if it's suspected, then ampicillin should be added. Am I getting this right, Mike? Yeah, you got it. And and it's hard if you're just listening. Page 22 of the guidelines has a very nice table breaking it out by age group and what infection you think is going on that tells you what antibiotic to use and when. So that's page 22 of 5,976, chapter 40. Yeah, I think, yeah. Verse, paragraph uh, 5. Chapter verse... 3, verse 3, subverse. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's only 40 pages long, including the, the um, references. So not bad. We're so mean. Why are we doing this to them? <laughs> now it's time for the second guideline of the three. Well appearing, febrile infants that are 22 to 28 days old. These kids are lower risk than their younger counterparts, but still at higher risk than the next older age group. With these kids, you can take a little less of a shotgun approach. Step one, we're still targeting with blood cultures, your inflammatory markers, Procal, CRP, and ANC, and a urinalysis, which is, again, the most common cause of all these bacterial infections we worry about. We have a little more wiggle room here with how we get the urine. Youngest kids, it's a cath or even your like suprapubic aspiration if you want to go that way with a needle through the skin here. If you can get this kid, this slightly older kid, to pee on their own, you can start with that. And this is whether they go into one of those wee bags you can kind of tape around their genitals here. If they can kind of spontaneously just pull the diaper down, they just kind of like, woo, they just start peeing. That's like you pulling that jackpot in Vegas, Martha, or with some sort of like a, a stimulation technique. Okay, so what, like running the faucet in the sink in the room or talking about like lemonade waterfalls, like stuff like that? <laughs> Please stop because I have to go pee now, okay? Uh, look, we have two of those stimulation techniques linked in the show notes. You know the website, tovue.farsight.fm. But basically the idea The chicken is- one? Sorry, the one that Rick does, Bucata does about the chicken. We, should, we don't want to spoil it, but if you want to see- uh, Rick uh, simulating his chicken squeezing catcher pee thing. It's like a five-person job. He does it at the course every year. It's so funny. But anyway, we'll put that in the liner notes. Do you not remember this? <laughs> no. I don't oh, know man. how I've missed this. Okay. Well, it'll be well, a surprise for you too. Yeah. Thankfully, the two um, we're recommending do, do not involve your axilla as far as getting uh, pee out of these kids. Okay. So you can either tap or rub with wet gauze over the bladder, and hopefully you get that liquid gold out. We have those <laughs> techniques listed in the show notes. If you can get your one of those ways here, stimulated, spontaneous, or the wee bag, and um, it does not suggest infection. And I know in adults, we shouldn't hang our hats on just a big leukocyte esterase count. But in this situation, in a kid this young, even an isolated leukocyte esterase count should have us worried about an infection. So if you get a urine that does not suggest infection, even through one of these relatively, you know, dirty ways of urine collection, you can stop worrying about the urine. If it has any hint of infection, then it is the time in this middle age group to do your cath or your suprapubic aspiration to be sure. That's step one, the P. Number two, Look at those inflammatory markers you got. Another marker to consider here is a temperature. We already talked about that. These kids are febrile. But a more 
suggestive number of your IBI or UTI is a temperature above 101.3 degrees Fahrenheit. If you're a metric head, that's 38.5 degrees Celsius. Mike, wait, Here's, what if it's 101.2? We're okay. We're going to be okay here. All right. Yes. No, I think that's important that we talk about that because these numbers were crunched like legit and like those made a big difference. So I just want everybody to sort of, you know, again, point you to this to this data. Sorry. I love that. And no, say, no, I think that's great because, yeah, these are kind of like your cutoffs here. So temperature greater than 101.3. Procal greater than 0.5 nanograms per milliliter, a CRP greater than 20 milligrams per liter, and an ANC greater than 4,000. Now, there's some wiggle room there. Look at the guidelines for more detail, but if you see greater than 4,000 uh, absolute neutrophil count here, start to get worried at that point. So, you're looking at inflammatory markers. If you see more than one of those markers elevated, the authors recommend that you get an LP at that point. However, if you have none of those markers elevated, you've already got your blood and urine cultures in hand, and you're going to hospitalize this kid anyways, if you're going to do that. The recommendation for an LP is downgraded to a may. You may do an LP in the situation. The reasoning here is that the authors cite studies that suggest in places where an LP was not done from the jump, exceedingly few to no bacterial meningitis cases missed are, are missed in this age group when there are no elevated inflammatory markers, okay? Step three, are you going to give antibiotics or not? Of course, if you've got something on your LP or your UA suggesting infection already there in the ER, you're giving antibiotics, right? Authors also suggest that antibiotics should be given if a child is going to be observed at home. Why might you do that? Well, if the UA and the LP are normal and there are no elevated inflammatory markers, there is a discussion to be made, according to the office, about whether this kid can be watched at home. Hmm. Think back to segment one. How reliable are the parents personally? How reliable do their socioeconomic setup, does that make them with regards to transportation and things like that? So those are the should recommendations for the antibiotics. Here are the may recommendations. The authors say you may give empiric antibiotics if the patient is being hospitalized and any inflammatory marker is normal, but the UA and the LP are negative. You may also give antibiotics to the hospitalized 22 to 28 day old if all of the big three inflammatory markers, UA and LP are normal or if the LP is positive for enterovirus. So they're saying you may, which implies you may don't have to, give antibiotics when every dang thing is normal. This is a lower risk, but not a no risk group for IBI. Lastly, step four, the DISPO instructions. If this is a kid that meets criteria to be observed at home, the good news is that only one to 2% of these kids go on to bounce back to admission. Even so, these kids should be back in front of a clinician within 24 hours or sooner for a reval. Right. You know, Mike, I just really want to take one quick second here to point out something I find extremely important. When you're hearing information like this, right? So maybe this is already a reiteration of what you know. But what I would suggest here, all the stuff that we talked about, Kawasaki's fever, and we're going to end here on COVID and kids, um, read the guidelines, okay? 
read them, skim them. You don't have to read all 900 million pages, but read them and then go back and listen to this and, and you are going to absorb that and you're going to know it. So, um, not that we're like all great at, at discussing this, but sometimes just reading it and then hearing it really solidifies that and, and improves your understanding. So I think that, uh, what really benefits from looking at the flow chart while you go through this um, is really important. It sort of looks like a map of DC traffic hour, excuse me, rush hour traffic. I was thinking to myself, make a note to talk about DC traffic in some way, shape or form. Um, but the flow sheet is helpful. So let's close out with the last guideline of the three. Okay. Well appearing febrile infants that are 29 to 60 days old I almost said 60 years. Sorry, 29 to 60 (laughs) days old. I'm getting tired. We're on the last segment here. These kids are even less risky, right? Okay, so um, than the last group. So the flow chart is a little less complicated. Basically, step one is the same as the 22 to 28 day old group. Get your UA, blood cultures, inflammatory markers. Step two, look at those inflammatory markers. We're using the same cutoffs as before. I'm not going to go through this again. Just Remember that you're using the same. Um, But let's go down the elevated inflammatory markers pathway first. Consider a screening UA with the bag, spontaneous or stimulated methods first, right? And then if it's clean, you're done with the UA. If not, get the cath or or, uh, the the chicken test that we're going to – oh, sorry. That was the other (laughs) – I'm digressing. You're fixated on the chicken thing. Look, I just really want people to know about how they get – how they get it out of our patients. (laughs) Okay, it will make sense when you see the video, okay? Okay. Okay, independently of that, if any of your inflammatory markers are elevated, consider the LP. If your CSF is positive for infection, that's easy. Give the antibiotics and admit. And if you can't get CSF or it doesn't give a solid answer, give antibiotics and then decide to admit for observation or discharge home with 24 hours or less follow-up. If you get an LP and the CSF is negative for infection, regardless of your UA result, you may give antibiotics. If the UA is positive, oral antibiotics are an option, and you may admit or discharge home, right? So again, read them, listen, read them, listen. You're going to get this. Yeah, I mean, this is adult learning is repetition, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what if none of your inflammatory markers are elevated in this older bracket of kids? If your UA is positive, send cultures on that. And an LP need not be performed in this older bracket of kids. That's a big change, in my opinion. You know what? A 29-year-old with a, a 29 <laughs> – I'm doing it too now, right? A 29-day-old yeah. with a fever, you're not doing an LP potentially here? That's a big change as far as how we manage these kids, in my opinion. Okay? Yeah. Um, oral antibiotics should be given with this UA-positive child, and the child may be – observed at home with 24 hour or less follow-up again consider how suitable the child and the family are to home observation and how well um, the family unit can can manage that if your ua is negative and like we mentioned none of the inflammatory markers are elevated an lp quote need not be performed antibiotics need not be given and the child should be Observed at home. We're talking about a 29-day-old kid. These guideline authors are saying this kid should be sent home with a negative UA and negative um, inflammatory markers here. Don't even LPM. Send him home with follow-up in 24 to 36 hours. This kid gets a little bit more rope for the follow-up time there. 
Oh, well, we warned you. This is a clearly very nuanced set of guidelines. It's guidelines in, nested in guidelines, but, but that and the data supporting them are where they get their power. There's a fair bit of room for, as you can hear, shared decision-making and possibly safely discharging this kid home. Uh, a kid that a month ago, before hearing about this, you would have admitted this kid slam dunk after the LP. With low risk to both the child and us as the clinician. These guidelines are ones you're going to want to bookmark and carefully go back through when you're in a position to take care of a kid like this. All right, so that was incredibly exhausting. But we still have one more segment. But hugely important. I mean, come on, right? I know. If you can hey. not LP a kid, if you can send a kid home that doesn't have to be in the hospital and catch who knows what from the kid next door, that's that's huge. I'm not saying that I don't want to follow or read the guidelines or like do this. I'm just telling you I'm tired. Jeez. Okay. This is it. And I am leaving this segment to the last for a couple of reasons. One, if things change overnight, we can just delete it. Mm. Okay. Or re-record it. And two, um, really, stuff is changing every day. So I'm going to start off by talking about what we know statistically about COVID and kids and the virus itself. We all know that there's controversy around COVID in general, and that is an understatement. It's a tough topic because it's political to some and downright refused to other, by, by others. And then you also have your standard anti-vaxxer population of people who are really doubling down on the COVID vaccine. And on top of that, the COVID vaccine is not approved right now in kids under the age of 12. What is interesting is that there are some kids petitioning to get the vaccine, even if their parents won't allow it. And this to me is a very interesting concept. But um, let's talk about kids and COVID because you're going to see it again and again and again and again sadly right you still with me mike yeah sorry <laughs> i'm listening <laughs> i've got one ear in the um in the youtube live stream and one ear in you here so i wasn't ignoring you i just ha- i was like yes you were who am i listening to am i listening to martha on the live stream or martha on live because there's a second delay anyways sorry i'm with you so with a little help from Harvard University, let's answer this question. Which COVID-19 vaccine has the FDA authorized for children? Yeah, so in May uh, 10th, 2021, the FDA expanded their use authorization. We call those uh, EUAs for the Pfizer COVID vaccine um, and to, to include adolescents 12 to 15 years old. Previously, the Pfizer vaccine was authorized for use in children 16 years or older. But for now, this is the only vaccine authorized in the U.S. for anyone under the age of 18. And this is important for you all because if you have a family come in and they want to know where if they can get a vaccine, you need to know that the only one that the 12-year-old can get is the Pfizer, right? Right. Um, Pfizer is also in the midst of conducting these age de-escalation studies where they're testing the vaccine in kids of younger and younger age groups. Right now, the EUA, the, the emergency authorization, uh, is based on results from a phase three trial of kids aged 12 to 15. Um, the kids were enrolled 22, uh, sorry, huh, 2,260 of them, adolescents, half them received legit Pfizer mRNA vaccine, the other a saltwater placebo. The immune response in the vaccinated adolescent group was even stronger than that in the vaccinated 16 to 25-year-olds enrolled in the earlier study. So whatever, um, you know, uh, lab markers for immune response, they're saying they were higher in these younger kids just with um, 
the 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 was it two did they get both vaccines like a two shot series yes. do you recall yep. a two shot series okay gotcha so two shot series for these kids in addition a total of 16 symptomatic cases of COVID-19 were reported during the trial all in the placebo group which meant that in this age group of 12 to 15 year olds vaccine Pfizer 100% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID-19 that's a big one yeah, you know, and the other kind of sidestep I wanted to talk here, I don't want to give any misinformation, so I made sure that this was correct um, because we all talk about the pros of the vaccine. There are a ton of pros. I want everybody to hear that. The vaccine is a great thing. You should do it. But there, the reason why I'm bringing this next topic up is because there have been a few cases, okay, as of July 12, 2021, so super recent, about a thousand cases of myocarditis or pericarditis that have been reported in people under the age of 30. Okay, so not just kids, younger kids, young adults, um, particularly in males and teens after the vaccination of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Now, that is showing up on all kinds of media sources in the news. And I, all I want to say is that there might be an association, but you, I don't want that to get confused with the potential of inflammation that occurs in general with actual COVID, which is worse. There are more cases of people having complications with COVID than there are from the vaccine. So hopefully that translates correctly, Mike. Um, is that is that good? Were we thinking that's acceptable? No, I like that. Um, we talked back on episode three, if you were, well, I mean, you were there clearly, so you recall here, in general, your vaccine-related side effects are mild. Uh, and that's things like, you know, it hurts at the injection site, there's some tiredness, headache, chills, muscle pain, fever, and joint pain. Um, we have in our show notes for episode three, kind of the breakdown in adults anyways of how many people got which side effects and to what severity. There are many people and I'm sure this will play out in children as well, who get no side effects or very minimal side effects from these vaccinations here. Um, I recorded a podcast less than 24 hours after getting my COVID vaccination. You know, I could have worked a shift if I wanted to, okay? Um, we are still, though, in the middle of this testing for kids even younger than 12 years. Um, as of our recording, we don't have information on that yet. Not been published. All right, so... Well, we do know about the vaccine right now, and this is why I love Harvard Health Publishing, actually, for putting up these updates. They're not just for healthcare providers. They're for families. They help me come up with a language. I mean, you can use any of the major institutions to do this, including your own. They help you sort of give this narrative to the patient and the family to try and say to them, uh, hey, this is what we know and what we don't know. This is the latest. It's from Harvard. It's from Stanford. It's from CHOP, right? That's really important. Um, and I'll put those in the liner notes. In addition, the CDC... Uh, this is where we're sort of getting into the meat of the matter here. Um, in the U.S. and globally, there are fewer cases of COVID-19 reported in children aged 0 to 17 years when compared to adults. This is true. Now, why that, why that is, is it a reporting thing? Is it an actualization? Um, there are a lot of variables here. But the hospitalization rates in children are significantly lower than the hospitalization rates in adults, especially over 55 with COVID, suggesting that children may have a less severe illness from COVID compared to adults. And I have cited a couple studies for that. Um, but again, you're going to have to look at the COVID data tracking page for all the specifics and they're going to change. But this is some major data over the last two years that I feel pretty confident agreeing with that. Yeah, um, it's kind of something we can say that kids don't suffer 
a ton of ill effects, but they do still get sick, okay? Right. Uh, and more statistically speaking, um, I'm going to say that really well. Statistically speaking, there you go. I kind of slurred it. Um, the severity of COVID-19, uh, again, not as frequent as adults and especially not as frequent as our geriatric patients. Um, what's tricky, though, the flip side of what sounds good is that kids sometimes don't show any perceivable symptoms at all. Okay, and that's how this can be a little bit scary. Um, pediatrics, we're going to that journal again, um, looking at a study of over 2,000 kids in the journal of pediatrics showed that over 90% of Pete's patients who tested positive were either asymptomatic or had mild to moderate versions of COVID-19. For the few cases that were actually critically ill, most of these were infants under the age of one. Most of these, 75%, had some sort of comorbidity going along with them preceding their illness. Yeah, and it's important to cite the literature here, right? So in another retrospective cohort study of 12,000 pediatric-confirmed COVID-positive patients, pediatric patients in the U.S., it was found that only 13% um, of the of the cases were children. Um, they looked – I'm sorry, did I read that wrong? I was reading this one specific uh, statistic I wrote down, and I was on a roll. Oh, you um, got it. Okay. They looked – okay, in this particular so – I'll just – memorize the study here in the study they looked at major outcomes like hospitalization mechanical ventilation and critical care as emergency clinicians this is what we care about right so we need to focus on that they looked at the presenting symptoms and this is where we want you to take note that kids usually and when we say usually based on this large study present with a very specific pattern of symptoms so that's uh, among these 12,000 children with lab-confirmed COVID-19, 16.5% presented with respiratory symptoms, cough, dyspnea. 13.9% had GI symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. 8.1% had dermatological symptoms, a rash. 4.8% had neurological symptoms like headaches. 18.8% had other nonspecific symptoms like fever, malaise, uh, myalgias, arthralgias, and disturbances of smell or taste. So again, um, cough, dyspnea, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, rash, headache, along with fever, body aches, and loss of, of taste and smell – similar to adults and their symptoms, but it also sort of sounding like something else. I'm just throwing that out there for a minute. Put your wheels to spin. In a study cohort um, that they looked at here, the hospitalization frequency was 5.3%, with 17.6% of those hospitalized needing critical care services, with 4.1% requiring uh, ventilation, mechanical ventilation. So um, a lot of these... Uh, kids were they were males and females but <coughs> excuse me I've been talking too much so it doesn't pick one or the other it's a very progressive disease as we'd like to say Mike it does not <laughs> discriminate male or female but what they did notice is that children of um, not uh, of black families and Hispanic children actually had greater problems with the illness. So in general, we still face healthcare disparities in this class of patients, and we see it across the board for many illnesses in healthcare. But this is a whole nother topic. So. <laughs> right. Well, you know, in the end, what we're getting from this is that in the pediatric population who gets COVID-19, kids are being hospitalized due to this illness, and kids are getting adverse clinical outcomes. The biggest symptoms that by kids in admission 
were the fever, the nausea and vomiting if you're getting dehydrated, or, you know, a severity of cough. Um, the illness is nothing to sneeze about. Get it? Mm -hmm. uh, in kids or adults. You know, people can get very sick, including our kids, and a lot of them need several interventions, sometimes over a prolonged period of time, and unfortunately can even die from the disease. We want to recognize it early, uh, and so we can give good instructions as far as what to look for early. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about underlying medical conditions, but I'm not even going to waste the time discussing it because according to the CDC, there's very little evidence about who's getting this. I mean, anybody can get it, period. That's all I'm going to say about that, and we're going to move on. But what I do want to uh, lastly discuss here before we sort of wrap things up is that there is an association between obesity and people getting very sick in general. So that is something you can think about. Um, again, there are non-obese, healthy kids with no underlying medical problems that get sick and some have even died. Uh, and again, another thing to note is areas that are limited in resources, they don't do well because it makes sense, right? So the disease takes up so many resources, supplies, drugs, nurses, care teams, specialists, ventilators, whatever. If you don't have those things, you're not getting great treatment. So let's, let's sort of just move on to like the most severe part of the disease as, as we end here. And that's multi-system inflammatory syndrome in kids with COVID. Okay. And this is the real hunkin like ribeye that I want to discuss. It's interesting because there are several reports in Europe and the U.S. earlier this year that suggested Kawasaki-like diseases where kids um, got significant inflammation uh, and multiple organ failure that tested positive for COVID. And their symptoms were all the things we talked about, the GI symptoms, abdominal pain, rash. Um, but then it started to include this mucous membrane and oral involvement, lymphadenopathy, mm. cardiac dysfunction. Is this sounding familiar? <laughs> right. So respiratory symptoms were seen, but the others were more common. Okay, fine. Um, what's interesting about the parallel of the bizarre symptoms that share similarities with Kawasaki's disease? Fever, swollen lymph nodes, rash, abdominal pain, conjunctivitis, mucous membrane involvement, peripheral edema, cardiac inflammation, hypotensin and shock, and the really sick kids and our elevated inflammatory markers. Right. So, you know, we're used to uh, reporting certain infectious diseases to local health authorities. The CDC recommends that we turn our printers on and, and fire off a report to local health authorities if they have these criteria for this MIS-C, this multi-system inflammatory syndrome in kids. Can you go ahead and tell us these three criteria, Martha? Yeah. So it's pretty clear here that a patient that's less than 21 years old that has a fever, um, and it's greater than 38 degrees Celsius for longer than 24 hours. Um, laboratory evidence of inflammation, like we talked about CRP, ESR, procalcitonin, ferritin. Some <laughs> other ones they talked about were LDH, interleukin-6, which is always a really fascinating one to me. Google that um, if you're not like robust on interleukin-6 right now or neutrophils, okay? Evidence of clinically severe illness requiring hospitalization or two organ involvement, so cardiac and renal, renal and respiratory, get the idea, okay, two. And no alternative plausible diagnosis and they're positive for COVID on their, on their test. Um, those are the people that we're reporting. If that, it's kind of like when you have to report for measles, there's just this freaking guideline that you have to look at. If your kid fits it, then you need to report it. Okay, so we figured it out. This kid has 
Miss C. Could it be so similar that the treatment for Kawasaki's could work for this Missy? Well, um, there is no clear best treatment for this. Um, here's some information from MRAP. Thank you, MRAP. We'll have that in our liner notes here. So there is a case series in the Lancet. Kids got IVIG, antibiotics, and aspirin. Five of those six children survived. And that should sound familiar because that's the recommended treatment regimen for Kawasaki's disease, okay? There was a cohort of Miss C kids in New York. They also were successfully treated with IVIG and aspirin, seeing a pattern here. And now, by the way, um, more severe cases where kids had to stay in the ICU for longer than two days, they also put some corticosteroids on there. And we're seeing from the recovery trial, I believe, the importance of corticosteroids in our severe COVID-19 patients. Other potential therapies like IL-1, and your favorite, Martha, IL-6 blockers are directed towards preventing the cytokine storm that we were looking at here and other things that related to COVID here. Um, they've been looked at. But this is really where your infectious disease specialist is going to come into play here. You're not dialing up the IL-6 blocker from the ER. Yeah, well, in general, we know that fevers and respiratory infections, including COVID now, can be triggers for Kawasaki's disease or diagnosis, and it indicates the potential timing of an increase in the incidence of Kawasaki's during this pandemic. Be on the lookout. I mean, in my mind, I, I hope that we put together this podcast that kind of brought it all together. I mean, looking at things that we've thought about, you know, that have been board questions for years that somehow are popping up more pre and they're more prevalent, dispersed into this, like, mosh pit of COVID, I just like to keep saying, as healthcare providers, we need to be prepared to manage the influx of, influx of these diseases, particularly where, you know, COVID is really bad. And it's exhausting stuff, man. This is, I'm tired. Did I already say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh. there's so much more to be said about COVID in kids. Um, but we wanted to pause there just because of the close tie to the Kawasaki disease we talked about earlier. Hopefully that gave you a general idea of how to pick up on this Miss C and the serious symptoms you need to be looking for. Check out the CHOP pathways again for really all things pediatrics, frankly. They have some of the best stuff out there with evidence-based practice uh, on their easy-to-follow algorithms. Not just bronchiolitis, not just Peds fever, not just Kawasaki's disease, not just COVID. They have everything. Appendicitis, child abuse. Um, I would say A to Z, but what's a good Z infection they could have a pathway on? Um, a Z infection? Uh, I don't know. My brain stopped working like Five How about ago. Y or X? Um, thinking backwards now. V, U, UTIs. There you go. Yeah. Okay. From, from Appy Fine. to UTI. They have guidelines here. Okay. Hey, I wanted to, I caught a question from a Michael Kugel in the YouTube chat. Since we are live today, we're trying that out today. Michael Kugel asked, is age the only thing that differentiates bronchiolitis from viral-induced wheeze? Um, I want to hear your take on this, Martha, but personally for me, I always hesitate when the question is asked and the words only, always, yeah. never are in there. I wouldn't say it's the only thing. We know bronchiolitis is more of a thing in our under two population, and it's more severe in our under one population here. Um, 
I don't know if there's any tests that we're going to run in the ED that says, hey, for sure this is bronchiolitis versus a viral-induced wheeze. Martha, you're to the Peds board at NP. What do you think about this question? I think you just answered the question 100% accurate. Okay. <laughs> there's nothing else for me to say. Woo! I mean, yeah, I mean... No, it's not the only thing that differentiates bronchiolitis from viral-induced wheezing. Um, you can have wheezing with a lot of different things. I think this question may have been like a two-part thing. I'm trying to read this person's mind. But uh, this does make me think, um, not hedging here because I did agree with what you said. If you do have a question, interact with us. Send us uh, your questions to um, our email address, which is twoviewcast, the number two, viewcast. <laughs> at gmail.com now mike I, we got to end this thing because did i mention i'm tired and i'm also hungry now oh, oh gosh so uh let's this is a new segment that we want to bring into play we're calling it mike and martha something sweet like i'm not ready for dessert yet but let's give the audience some dessert and you can go first yeah so uh something quick that i saw a little quick hitter a little something in a, a little amuse bouche if you'll go ahead and stay with the food analogy here, is this uh, article from the Annals of Emergency Medicine called Maximizing the Morning Commute, a randomized trial assessing the effect of driving on podcast knowledge acquisition and retention. Short story is they compared residents who were sitting in a room listening to podcasts and residents who were driving listening to podcasts, their findings were no decrement to knowledge acquisition and retention by driving and listening versus sitting somewhere still. So that really kind of like fed mm -hmm. my priors there because that's, that's usually when I'm listening to podcasts is when I'm on the road somewhere. So I love that. Mm -hmm. Show uh, notes will have the link to that. Really pro-podcast study there. I loved it. Martha, what's your something huh. sweet? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I... Mine, I put together a lot longer thing, and then I realized that I don't really want to talk about all this stuff now. However, what I can say is this is this, the summary. I'll, let, me, let me give you a couple things. I wanted to talk about magnesium for all, like healthcare for all. All like the things? Okay. Magnesium. I love when you say that, by the way, for all the things. Yes, magnesium for all the things. It is a wonderful and essential element, okay? And I salute you. I could just stop there, but let me just, just a couple of things, okay? Magnesium has a lot to offer for cardiac patients, arrhythmias, constipation, menstrual pain, muscle aches, chronic pain, headaches, migraines, heartburn, asthma, preeclampsia, and more. But did you know the benefits of magnesium and sleep? I yes. Feel like an oh, I sorry. You, were, you weren't asking me that question. You, it's a rhetorical question. No. Yes. I do. Yeah, I take a magnesium before no, I go No, no, no. You're, you're supposed to say no. You don't know. And now I'm going to tell you, right? I have I'm no idea how magnesium benefits sleep, Martha. Help me out. Okay. So because magnesium is the fourth most abun abundant essential mineral in the body, it can actually be depleted quite easily, and studies estimate that about 75% of Americans don't even actually meet the recommended dietary allowance of magnesium. But I looked at a study, okay, and I put the, the links in here. This is a 2012 study in the Journal of Research and Medical Sciences, and it basically looked at a study of, I think, 46 elderly patients that were given magnesium. And there are all these different things that they looked at in the study uh, that basically they weren't sleeping right. They were 
early waking, they were having this questionnaire to fill out and they were like, my sleep sucks, right? And they also, this is the one thing about the study that I didn't like was that they gave them a 24-hour diet recall for like three days. And I'm like, uh, like my mom stopped remembering what she ate when she was like 50. Don't tell her I said that. But like we're relying on these on these elderly patients to give us like a detailed history. I guess if they didn't write it down, maybe they did. But um, the point is, is that they looked at these things like the actual um, reports of did they sleep better? Did they not wake up in the morning earlier? And then they looked at some blood tests. And essentially what they saw in the experimental group, because it was a double blind randomized clinical trial, which is my favorite, um, they saw in the experimental group that dietary magnesium supplementation brought statistically significant increases in sleep time, sleep efficiency, concentration of serum renin and melatonin, and also resulted in significant decrease of this, uh, basically this questionnaire of their insomnia, like they, they felt better. Um, so the conclusion was that, hey, magnesium does all those things I already said, but it can also help with insomnia. And from personal experience, Mike, it has helped me. Hmm. But just just caution, it can make you a little hypotensive. I just wanted to let you know that. It can. Okay. Gotcha. Let's close it out. Let's go to our trivia answer, okay? So our two-view, two-part question from last episode was, who is Wellens, again, no apostrophe, grammarphobes out there, who is Wellens syndrome named after, and in what year did he co-author the paper that describes what we now know as Wellens syndrome? The answer is cardiologist Henrik Wellens. He described with his co-authors what we now know as Wellens syndrome in 1982. We were both alive at that point in the American Heart Journal. The winner this month, Mike Sprosty, PA Mike Sprosty. Mike actually was at our live original emergency medicine boot camp in July. So I actually got to meet him. That was great. Maybe I'll use the prize to check out another one of our Center for Medical Education courses like emergency medicine and acute care review. Or maybe he'll go to the advanced boot camp or maybe he'll give it to a friend. Who knows? Yeah, so uh, we have a trivia question. Uh, this time. But the, if you win this one, you're going to get 20% off any CCME course that you want. And, uh, you know, I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> Here's the question. It's a pediatric themed episode. So let's do a pediatric question. And Mike, thanks for pulling this one. Uh, what year did the TV show Sesame Street first air in the United States? And what color was Oscar the Grouch's fur? Uh. Very medical based here. Well, I thought I'd kind of break away for the medical it. stuff for a second here. Okay, well, email us your guesses. Martha gave you the, the email address. It's 2viewcast at gmail.com. That's the number 2viewcast at gmail.com. And tell us who you want to shout out to if you get this right. Okay. All right. So for more information or to give us just general feedback, you can email us. You can go to our website at www.ccme.org. And we do have some upcoming boot camps. I do have some sad information that our September 2021 advanced course has been canceled due to COVID and other traveling issues. So um, we will keep you posted. Keep listening of when our next course will be. You can tune in anytime to our site and look at some of the pre-recorded lectures. And if you are dying or aching or have a need to see one of the talks um, that we have at the courses, we have quite a few up there to choose from. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Two View. You can subscribe and you can really rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for 
two view emergency. Again, it's always the number two, and it will come right up. Number two in your hearts? No, wrong. Number two in the search engine, number one in your hearts. That's where I was going with that. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, hey, We're- listen, it can be number two in their hearts. I mean, don't put pressure on these people. Well, at least we can tie for first, maybe. I don't know. Well, look, <laughs> ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians can get to view goodness as well. If you like YouTube, maybe you are watching live. Uh, and if not, you still want to see the video blog and said, search for Center for Medical Education in YouTube, and you can catch the video version of this podcast. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics. And boy, some of these guidelines that are really, if you're a visual learner, you're going to want to go next level on our website from any of our topics today, any of the episodes, any of the papers we referred to, that's at twoview.fireside.fm. It's always the number two. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett, and show notes are done by Meg Dipple. Thank you again for tuning in, our friends in EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email, and thanks for sharing your time with us today at The Two View. Have a good day and a great shift. <laughs>